This morning, I read an article from the Fredericksburg Freelance Star, and it was a commentary, and here's what the title of the commentary was. Time to give dogs, AKA family members, the vote. Now, I do believe there was some satire intended with the article, but let me read to you how the, the author writes at the beginning of this article. He writes, should dogs be allowed to vote? In a society that is getting more and more complicated, this is an issue that state and national legislators may soon have to explore. And then he wrote, you think I am kidding, I am not. The status of dogs has changed dramatically during the past several decades, and now dogs are much more than just pets. Okay, so let me ask the obvious question here. How many of you have a dog that is part of the family? Raise your hand. And I'm not talking about your brother or your sister. Okay, so how many of you have a dog that's part of the family? Raise your hand. Okay, so... You know, I'm reading this article because it caught my attention. Uh, it piqued my attention. And so I thought, what's he trying to say? And he just goes on and he makes this case for why dogs should be given voting status. And then he did, by the way, I'm not the one saying this. He said it. He said, this should not be granted to cats. That was his. And then he built quite a powerful case as to why not. But he's building this case as to why should dogs be allowed to vote. And then he says, because they're part of the family. And I know, I understand that. I, um, this last weekend, Sunday afternoon and Monday, I traveled um, quickly to a family funeral. So I'm at the airport and um, I think I'm in Atlanta and Julie sent me a picture and she just sent me a picture and I just start smiling. Here's the, here's the picture. <laughs> so this is Sadie and Sadie is sitting there like a boss, you know, it's like, um, <laughs> It's like, hey, I can kind of picture her paw going, give me a treat, you know, that kind of a, hey, I want a treat, you know, that kind of a deal. I understand the, uh, the idea of dogs being part of the family. Okay, so let's get rid of the picture so people can listen again. Okay, very good, okay. So, um, so I understand the idea, but I also will say that if you can redefine who it is that gets to vote, be it some, some satire intended or be it a serious consideration, if you can redefine personhood, then you also understand you can redefine just about anything. There are things that are, that are not timeless. There are things that are for certain people, for certain times, for certain days, how many of you have ever looked through your parents' um, high school yearbook? You ever done that before? How many of you have ever looked back, like you're my age and you've looked back at your own high school yearbook and then you burnt the yearbook, okay? <laughs> because you understand that there are some things that are not timeless, some things are timely. Style is one of those things. There are things that we're doing tonight that are, that are timely and I suspect that if Christ tarries, something will take its place. We, we went to a lot of effort and to a lot of expense. Campus Church uh, shared in this with Pensacola Christian College for a project in this building that we're benefiting from tonight. We, we have screens in this auditorium and in, in this building that are suitable for the day. It's, it's so interesting, the, the, the screen, if, if you haven't been here previously to this year, the screen that was here prior was a rear projection screen 
It was in a four by three orientation and it was, it was state of the art when it was installed, but it's not a timeless feature, it's just a timely feature. To know the difference between the timeless and the timely is sometimes challenging, but that's where we have a timeless book. We have truths that resonate for all people, all places, and all times. Yesterday, Congress voted to confirm what is called the Respect for Marriage Act. Now, as we address this tonight, I do want you to know I'm not assuming, and I I wanna be careful about this, but I'm not trying to assume that every person in the house would, would come to conclusions that I have come to. So I do understand that, but I also am going to at least acknowledge that I, I do believe, or I shouldn't say what I'm gonna to say tonight, I do believe what I preach every Sunday. If, if, if a pastor doesn't have a moral compass, and I'm not just speaking about me, but anyone who stands up and says, thus saith the Lord, if there's no moral compass that says, this is exclusively what you are called to deliver, if he doesn't have that, then the, the whims of culture or societal change begin to then drive the message as opposed to the message being driven by something bigger than our day. So when we start to talk about a bill that, that Congress has concluded is the will of the people, we then understand that, that it may be, quite frankly, the will of the people. But that is something that vacillates incredibly. Our Supreme Court back in the 1800s is a Supreme Court that said that, um, that they cannot address the matter of slavery and they cannot tell a state that, that they can't own another person. Um, it was our Supreme Court back in the 70s that said that you can take the life of an unborn child that should be protected in the womb of a mother. I'm, I'm saying all of this to say that, that our, our own Supreme Court has recognized, first of all, that slavery is an offense to the freedoms for all mankind. And our own Supreme Court has recognized that we do not have the ability to say as a court of law that abortion is something that you have a basic inerrant right to. We, we got it wrong. Okay. So there is at least some precedent for us to say that there are things that we've gotten right and there are things that we've gotten wrong. I believe that where we are landing today as a nation regarding our definitions are problematic. So the reason we're addressing this tonight is because all of us in here, I'm not speaking to, I know that oftentimes we we come in here and and there may be an assumption that, well, they're just speaking to college students. I'm speaking to campus church. And campus church needs to understand all of us that if we don't have some foundation regarding a definition of marriage, then it is left to our own inclinations, which sometimes we even recognize as, as defying what is natural. We're left then to the whims of the pressures about us. And we are, like, like the Bible warns us about, we are squeezed into the mold of something that is other than what we were created to be. The title of the message tonight is With All Due Respect. 
And this is the subtitle, Why Marriage Matters. And I would say with all due respect, I must disagree that this bill titled Respect for Marriage, truly, I disagree that it truly provides for marriage the respect it is due. So I want us to address some things tonight about marriage. First of all, three basic facts about marriage. These are things that, that I think even culturally, there has been a common understanding regarding. We've strayed from that, and I certainly am going to insert, infuse these thoughts with, with biblical content, but I think these are three basic facts about marriage. Number one, God gave marriage its design. We've understood this historically, that there is a design to marriage. I'll address that, Lord willing, in just a few moments. But God gave it its design. In Genesis chapter two, verse number 18, the Bible says, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Um, He causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He removes from Adam's side um, a portion of him. And from that, he forms and fashions woman. And he, he helps Adam understand. First of all, he helped Adam recognize his need. And then Adam says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she came forth out of man. And then the Bible helps us understand marriage. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. When God designed marriage, he also defined marriage marriage. He gave it its design and then he defines the same. So plainly stated, what is marriage? Here's a simple definition. Marriage is that union that brings a man and woman together as husband and wife to be father and mother to any children their union produces. That's a simple working definition of marriage. Now, is there more to marriage than that? Yes, there certainly is. But this is a basic understanding of what does what marriage look like? To define marriage as anything else is, I would submit, playing a game with words. Now, we're trying to attach marriage to a definition that if we're honest, we're, we're playing with words. Marriage is based on the biological fact that reproduction depends on a man and a woman and the reality that children need a mother and a father. So marriage is the building block of civil, of all uh, human civilization. Government has recognized historically that a father and a mother in a committed relationship is by far the best possible means by which responsible citizens are made. So what do we understand? Well, first of all, God gave marriage its design. Secondly, God gave marriage its purpose. God gave marriage its purpose. Now, we're gonna address, there there may be more, but we're gonna address three very straightforward purposes that God also gave to marriage. Um, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, this is a passage of scripture that we won't take time to detail, but he does make them male and female. You'll notice that, that that's in the passage. He created the male and female, created he them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, so now we're getting into a little bit more of the the detail of marriage and what's necessary. He makes a male and female. So we have, forgive the, the, the carefulness of wording, but we have one biological male. I'm not being silly about this and it's not a cheap shot, okay? 
It's not the person who identifies as one or the other. It is that God created a person to be a biological male. And then he created them to be a biological female. And then he now, if we, if we understand purposes more clearly, he says, be fruitful and multiply. To, to have marriage as, as fulfilling its definition, we understand and historically, civilizations have understood that you have to have the potential for offspring. God gave us that understanding at the very beginning He said, okay, so here we're going to have a a biological male, a biological female, and then there's going to be the potential for their union to produce fruit, be fruitful and multiply. Now, I'm saying the obvious, but two women can't fulfill the objective of fruit. Two men cannot produce the, the, the potential for offspring. So if we, if we don't have the, the necessary partners, we don't have the necessary produce, the, the offspring of that union. So what are some of the purposes? Well, procreation. God's first command to the new couple, first command, be fruitful and multiply. Ryan Anderson, he's from the Heritage Foundation, he wrote, at its most basic level, marriage is about attaching a man and a woman to each other as husband and wife, to be father and mother to any children their sexual union produces. So we understand a few important things about this relationship. We understand that that first, uh, we know that a, a man and a woman are essential. We've covered that. Babies can't be made any other way. We, we always know Again, I'm not being silly about this, but we always know when a baby is born, we know that there's a mother very close by, okay? So nobody says when a baby's born, who's the mother? Because we do understand that. Now, I'm jumping ahead just a little bit, but we don't always know who the father is. Now, we, we should. So the, the product of that union, we do understand we have a father and a mother that has produced this fruit in the womb. And now a baby's born, we know who the mother is. One of the things that marriage provides for is the stability that is only provided through a father and a mother. So we understand procreation. This is part of what God has infused into the purpose and thereby the definition of marriage. We begin to more fully recognize our created purpose. And as we do, we understand that marriage allows a father and a mother to raise children. And and if we're understanding, wow, I'm created as an image bearer, we're producing children that are supposed to represent their creator throughout the world all throughout the world, that they're supposed to understand when we grasp, I am created with a likeness. I'm an image bearer. And now be fruitful and multiply, like have lots of babies. And as you're having these babies, they're also now these representatives of the one whose image they bear. Not only their human image, like, oh, hey, um, she looks like her mom, he, he looks like his dad, but the actual first parent, so to speak, our father, God, that we go and we represent him. After the flood, God's first command, be fruitful and multiply. 
Again, the only way this is possible is through the union of a biological male and biological female to come together in a sexual union that provides the opportunity to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, so marriage, procreation. I'm saying this too often, so forgive the repetitive nature of this, but I wanna be careful and, and I don't want to put someone in a box that they feel like they can't get out of. But marriage provides some stability for a physical, what we oftentimes refer to as a marriage bed relationship that has the potential for procreation. Now we live in a culture today that is, for lack of a, a better term, a hookup culture. We live in a culture today that has a sexual relationship just for the, the quite frankly, just for the pure fun excitement, enjoyment of the relationship. But God has designated something that works within marriage and is protected. And now there's motivation. In other words, I'm going to, I'm going to follow God's plan. I'm not going to have a physical, sexual relationship with another person until marriage. Today, there's terminology that we're using like, like this, this soul tie, that I have some, some deep emotional connection. And, and psychologists are talking about this today. Um, this is not some pastor that's coming up with a term and saying, th this is what our culture's talking about. And they're talking about this deep emotional bond that people are sensing after what they, they usually refer to as an intimate relationship. Well, well, why is that problematic? It's, it's not problematic in marriage. I mean, let, let's be, let's think through the ramifications of this. If God designed marriage and he designed for, for a physical relationship, an intimate physical relationship to exist within marriage, doesn't it make sense that God would also design for us to have some kind of deep emotional physical, spiritual bond with the person that we have a physical relationship with. But now there's some phenomena where like, wow, why do I have this, this tie with this person? I, I just wanted to have fun or, hey, we, we did X, Y, or Z. And, and now I have this, like, whoa, this deep relationship, this, this intimacy with, and we're not even together. So the reason I, I wanna be careful with this is there could be a lot of people in here that say, well, that's me. I am telling you, our sins, they are many. And you could finish the, the song that we sang tonight, his mercy is more. So I, I'm saying, I'm not trying to put someone in this box where they say, well, well, I'm doomed to have this frustrating life. I'm not saying that. I'm saying his mercy is more. But I am also saying that God does have a design for a sexual relationship and it is within the, the bounds of marriage. It's how he intended it to be. Okay, so when we start to think through what is God doing? Well, procreation. Let's take that a little bit further because I think even in my own history, I've limited you know, some, some aspects of marriage that, that may not be telling the full story. I think not only procreation, but I would also say completion. Completion. 
You say, well, what are you talking about with that? God's the one who decided that Adam needed Eve to be complete. He's the one who said it's not good that man should be alone. God's pattern had been let there be and there was. Let there be light and there was. Um, let the earth spring forth and let the, the, let the heavens be separated from. All of that, let there be. But then he created Adam differently from all the rest of creation. Different from a dog, okay. Different from any other living thing, Adam's unique. It's not good that man should be alone. The Bible is not saying that an unmarried person is not whole. Let me say that again, and please don't miss this. The Bible is not saying that an unmarried person is not whole. The Bible gives a lot of clarity to this. But singleness is a calling. It is not God's normal or usual plan. If God has not called you to singleness and you remain so, it is not good that you should be alone. Some may argue, well, I don't want the hassle of marriage. But if you're not called to singleness, you are in the same position as Adam. It's not good. Say, well, there's a lot of risk involved. I understand that, but it's not good. So the, the, the person who has the gift of singleness, they're not a lesser person. They have a special gift. God's normal plan for mankind is marriage. So the, the, I won't take a lot of time with this, but 1 Corinthians 7, 9, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better for them to marry than to burn. What he's talking about there is desire. God's given us all kinds of desire and they're necessary, important desires. And every desire that God has given, I would submit Satan longs to abuse. So desire comes from God within the framework that God provides satisfaction for those desires. Marriage is a uniquely comprehensive union. It does involve all of us, our minds, our wills, and certainly our emotion. And it's based on the complementary aspects of both men and women, physically, mentally, and emotionally. And the bond between a husband and wife deepens with the physical marriage bed intimate relationship. Then children have the potential to enrich that bond in even deeper ways. It, it, it enhances the level of commitment between the husband and the wife. There are a lot of motivating factors for two to come together in marriage. And then if God blesses that union with children, there are even now expanded, richer uh, uh, unions that take place between not just that husband and wife, but now the, the fruit of their marriage. Why does God give us marriage? Well, he gave it to us for procreation. He gave it to us for completion. And I'm just gonna mention this. You could do further study. But I believe one of the primary reasons God gave us marriage here on, on this side of eternity is for illustration, illustration. We know that marriage is, in fact, every wedding I've ever done, I, I believe I have said, till death do you part till death do us part. Marriage then ceases at death, but there is a marriage that never ceases. We have this earthly picture of some heavenly reality. And God's given us all kinds of pictures here. We have baptism as a picture, an illustration. We have the Lord's Supper as an illustration, a picture. And you know, you have all around you marriage that's to be a picture of an eternal reality. We are the bride of Jesus Christ and that union will never be broken. Okay, 
so God's given us a lot of things and God also gave us, God gave mankind his desire for marriage. So a couple questions that we need to at least address briefly. What are the consequences of redefining marriage? What are the consequences of this? Redefining marriage puts a new principle into law. That marriage is whatever emotional bond the government says it is. So where do we go from that? Where do we end with redefining? Is everything open now to redefinition? All at the whim of the masses. I believe that one of the goals behind redefining marriage is is fulfilled in the Respect for Marriage Act. I, I think that the Respect for Marriage Act, while it gives lips service to protections, it, it exposes people of deeply held religious beliefs to, to, to litigation and to attack in measures that I believe are unprecedented. Th- these are some quotes from people who advocate for the redefining of marriage. Professor Ellen Willis celebrates the idea of completely redefining marriage and said, conferring the legitimacy of marriage on homosexual relations will introduce an implicit revolt against the institution, that is the institution of marriage, into its very heart. What they're saying is we're, we're sending a death blow to the institution of marriage. Michelangelo Signorile urges same-sex couples to fight for same-sex marriage and its benefits and then, once granted, redefine the institution of marriage completely because the most subversive action we can undertake is to transform, transform the notion of family entirely. In other words, we're going to change the whole dynamic we're going to alter entirely the institution. So what is at stake is completely redefining both a biblical and a natural view of marriage. So questions, why shouldn't everyone be able to marry the one they love? Okay, good question. Every one of us is free to love as we choose. No one is entitled, however, to redefine marriage for all of us. Uh, Do you know it's interesting that, that Every action has consequence, all of them. Um, God tells us what to do and he tells us this is how life works, but he doesn't force you to do any of it. You have a choice. I, I find it interesting. We have choices about all kinds of things and then oftentimes we make a choice but we don't want the consequences of the choice. So, so I make a choice, well I want this but I don't want the consequences that go with it. Or I don't want, okay, I want to do this. Can you imagine, you you can apply this to anywhere, but I want to work at McDonald's, but I I don't want to do this, this, or that. No, 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 if you're going to work at McDonald's, then then part of working at McDonald's is is everything that goes along with it. So if we're going to say marriage is something, then this is what goes with marriage. The easy way is to say, well, let's make marriage this. It'd be convenient for me to say, okay, I want to work at McDonald's, but I get to define what it looks like. What God says is, let me define marriage. Well, what about the person who says, I want to do this? Well, God's not saying you can't, but that doesn't mean that we get to redefine something that is true for all people, all places, and all times. 
Every marriage policy must draw lines of what constitutes a marriage and what doesn't constitute marriage, every one of them. Um, I find this interesting that I read the whole text for the Respect for Marriage Act and the Respect for Marriage Act says that um, anybody can marry anybody, but it also makes a little note, but you can't marry multiple people at the same time. Well, why not? And I'll tell you why not, because not enough people at this point have said that you can marry as many people as you want. But someday, when enough people say, I'm not being silly about this. I'm not being silly about what I'm about to say. And that is, right now, we understand that there is an age of consent. But if enough people come to the place where they say, well, well, these two people genuinely love each other, and a child can truly love. I'm not being silly about it when I, when I say I, I believe that if you don't have a definition of marriage that's true for all people, all places, and all times, then anything's on the table regarding who can and who can't be married. So what are the things we have to answer? Well, every one of us is free to love as we choose, but no one's entitled to redefine marriage for all of us. Our policy has been historically based on the idea that marriage is fundamentally rooted in the union of one man and one woman. And that principle is removed. Now there's no consistent argument for stopping anyone who wants to redefine marriage. Let me just mention these next. Isn't denying same-sex couples the freedom to marry the same, uh, isn't denying same-sex couples the freedom to marry the same as a ban on interracial marriage? And let me answer with an emphatic emphatic no it is not the same Um, marriage must be colorblind but it cannot be gender blind when we start to understand races racism kept races apart and that is a bad thing marriages unite two sexes and that is a good thing I firmly believe and I'm convinced that the Bible teaches that men and women, regardless of their race, can unite in marriage. Further, children need moms and dads, regardless of their race, and connected to their gender. And number four, the last one I'll mention. While we may not support um, their marriage, why can't two people of the same gender who love each other be together? I think that's a place where we oftentimes get stuck in our mental processing. And here's my simple answer. If it wasn't for this, I would have a different answer. Just so you know, if it wasn't for this, I would have a different answer. You say, well, well why can't they? Because God says it's wrong. That, that, that is the, the bottom line for my answer. If it wasn't for that, I would have no basis on which to say who can and who can't be married. I I chose to leave out um, Old Testament moral references, but but the Bible's clear. Some, Some say, well, that's Old Testament law. Okay, the Bible's clear in Romans chapter one, 26 and 27. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one to another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meet, was appropriate. This is not the time or the place, and time prevents us from doing so. 
But there are people who say, well, what do I do because I struggle with same-sex attraction? There are answers that the Bible points us to regarding our desires. I'm so grateful that, that when a person understands I am more than the sum of my desire, I am more than that. And there's not a person in here that doesn't in some way, shape, or form understand that your desire is not to be the ruler of your life. And then sometimes we start to say, well, but what do I do with my life? I have my life in front of me. There is a God who is bigger than our desires. And there is a God who is supposed to be our chief desire, the the end of all our desires. Sometimes we feel like our satisfaction is our, the fulfillment of our desires brings actual fulfillment. But actual fulfillment comes when we let him be our chief desire. So there is, there is help and hope and answers for all of our desires found in Jesus Christ. That's a very simplistic wrap up answer and one that we'd certainly be desirous to, to provide additional ongoing insight and help and counsel. I'm not saying this because I'm an enemy of a person who would, agree, who would choose to believe differently than I do. I, I feel like the church today needs to engage a culture that holds to a vastly different position. And we need to do so with a carefulness and a kindness and a kindness that is befitting the gentle shepherd. But I also believe that with a, a steel resolve, we can't allow our kindness to those who need the love of Christ to bend the unchangeable definitions that God's left for us. And his definitions regarding marriage have not changed. Campus Church, this is the day and age with which we live. The consequences of where we're heading are yet to be fully seen, but God is still on his throne. And this is the day in which we live. So embrace the day. Let's not continually lament our challenge, but let's look for new opportunities to advance the greatest cause given to mankind, and that is to rightly reflect our Savior.